Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Live It Well podcast. We are your hosts, Chris and Jenny Gravy. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We are so glad that you're here with us. Each week, we invite authors, mentors, friends of ours who have an inspiring message, who are living their life well. And so our goal is to learn and grow, and we want to invite you to do the exact same thing with us. So hope you're ready. Let's dive right in. So good to be back with you all today. We hope you had a wonderful holiday season with your family and that 2020 is off to a great start for you already. If you're like us, you probably already have your list of goals set for the year. Maybe you're off and running with them. Maybe you've picked a word for the year and you're leaning into it with all you have. Or maybe you've already given up on waking up early or going to the gym or staying off your screen, whatever your goals are. But wherever this finds you today on day 14 of this brand new year, we hope that this episode will be a breath of fresh air for you and that it will encourage you to let go of the try harder mindset, striving for perfection and success, and instead to embrace a more gentle, kinder mindset. Today, we're chatting with author and therapist, Andi Kolber, as she shares with us how to try softer. What's so fascinating to me about really this journey of trying softer is that I have become so much more resilient than I ever thought possible. And it's not because I've continued to push myself outside of my limits. Andi unpacks why it's important to slow down long enough to listen to what our bodies and our emotions are trying to tell us, and how to stop ignoring our feelings and instead start understanding and processing emotions in healthy ways. This conversation was so rich and so helpful, and we hope you'll be encouraged as you listen in. Well, Andi, welcome to the show. We're glad you're here. Thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah. All right. We love this message that yeah. you have. This book that you're coming out is, is so good, and I cannot wait to unpack it. But before we do that, let's help our listeners know a little bit about you, who you are, where you live, family, all that good stuff. Yeah. So so I'm a licensed therapist in Castle Rock, Colorado. Um, I've been practicing for over a decade. Um, I have two kiddos, and then I'm married to my husband, Brendan, uh, for over 12 years, and I definitely consider him my best friend. And this message of Try Softer, for me, is really like the work of my heart. It's sort of began as a love letter to my younger self, who really didn't have um, the language or the resources to understand why I almost couldn't help but live from a posture of trying harder. Um, even when I knew maybe better, you know, like even when people told me I didn't have to live that way, my body didn't know that. And so this has really been the journey, both therapeutically as a, you know, as a counselor and just as a person to figure out what does it mean to have a different posture. Mm. That's so good. So how did you get into the field of therapy? There's got to be a story behind that. Yes, man, there are several, but I'll try to keep them <laughs> kind of short. Um, I went to undergrad for business, okay. and I really thought I was going to be like a social justice lawyer. Like that was kind of my like, I just want to go and sort of save the world mm. a little bit. Um, and a lot of that came out of a place of experiencing just a lot of difficult things in my childhood, just things that didn't make sense. And I think I it felt like, well, maybe I can go and do something about this in this way. Hmm. 
And what I began to learn is that I'm just not wired to be a lawyer. Like, I mean, I definitely am a passionate person, but like for lots of different reasons, it's really good that I didn't be like, I'm so, I'm glad that that's not my, my personal profession. Um, but so essentially it was sort I kind of got to my early twenties and, and began to realize that that was not, um, the wisest choice. And I went through a huge transition. I, I was engaged to someone. I actually called that off, called off that engagement. Um, I moved across the country. I was basically just like cracked open, sort of like, what is like, who am I? <laughs> what is happening in my life? Everything that had made me myself, like um, I, I played basketball in college. I was a really um, high achieving student. All these things were basically kind of gone. <laughs> and that's when I began to ask the question, like, who am I and what can I offer the world? And so just through a bunch, like, honestly, so many God moments that I began to think seriously about mental health and some great mentors and things like that, I ended up going to Denver Seminary. And that was a huge catalyst for me to really begin to do my own personal work. And, and really, I'll just say this as a side note, the best therapists are those who've really entered into their own story and their own pain. And so that's really what I was challenged to do. Um, and that has been about, you know, gosh, thir- 12 or 13 years. And that once I began to recognize that God made us so complex, that there's so much wisdom available to us, that God has lots of methods and ways that we can heal, it just lit me up in a, in a really um, specific way and made me know that like, this is sort of the work, this is the work of my life. That's so good. And you specialize in trauma, correct? I do. Yeah. A lot of times I'll call myself a trauma informed therapist. Okay. Um, I do work a lot specifically with folks who might come in with trauma, but the trauma informed lens essentially acknowledges that all of us have a story that lives in our body and that influences us in every moment of every day. And trauma, if we have a wider view of it, we understand that it's happening because it's stored in our body. It can influence sort of the way that our body is reacting to various experiences and sending us into things like fight or flight, Mm -hmm. even potentially dissociation or freeze or depression. Mm -hmm. And we don't even necessarily have a conscious realization that that's happening. Yeah. I want to take a second because I think there's people listening going like, oh, okay, she deals with like extreme cases. Like trauma is like big things. Sounds that big. Happen. Yeah, it sounds yeah. really big. But I would love for you to take a second and just kind of inform our audience that trauma can come in many shapes and sizes and what maybe that may look like and help people even realize, oh, maybe that was trauma in my life. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I work from a really broad definition of trauma. And what that means is, Um, When we look at our nervous system, which is what allows us to move through pain, it's the part of our body that really helps us process pain. So when we experience something that is overwhelming to our nervous system and our ability to cope, and we are not able to fully process it, that is what becomes trauma. And so within that, there are two forms of trauma. There's what I would call big T trauma. So that's what most folks think of. That's PTSD. And I won't give like the full diagnostic, but that's typically like, 
you know, veterans, when they come back, it's a threat to your life. It's sexual violence. It's natural disasters. Um, and so there are some specific criteria that re- is required for that. But little t trauma is literally anything that overwhelms our nervous system and our ability to cope. And so sometimes I might even use the language like, is it still disturbing? Um, Because again, that might be a little bit easier to understand than is it traumatic? I call it like my husband thinks it's kind of funny that I use this language, but I say it it feels yucky. Mm -hmm. Like when you think about this event, like you have a visceral like, ooh, that's a sign that there's something there. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so good. Well, I think... I think I want to lead into this topic because I think it plays nicely into the book that you've written, and it's called Try Softer. Now, you, you hit on it a little bit earlier, but um, take a second, unpack the concept behind this. And I would like to even hear, like, when was the moment you're like, I got to write this book? And when you were, like, compelled to say, I got to do this. Love to hear that story as well. Yeah. So Try Softer has been this idea that's evolved over time. But really what it's come to mean and really how I talk about it in the book, in essence, is that it means that we learn to pay compassionate attention to our own experience. And the reason this matters, I truly believe, for everyone is because we live in a culture in which we are constantly socialized and even, honestly, like we are given approval and like encouragement to not listen to our internal experience. And if we think about trauma, trauma is in our body, right? So these things are diametrically opposed that in order to heal and to be emotionally well, we literally are created to have an internal system that is able to give us wisdom about, hey, I'm hungry or I'm tired or I'm sad or I need connection. And so when we blunt and suppress and numb that information, we're literally setting ourselves up, and not necessarily on purpose, but to be traumatized. So pain is getting stuck in our bodies, and there's layers of pain in our culture. And, And some folks, like me, I grew up in a really significantly dysfunctional family. So a lot of my personal trauma is, um, it's very young in my story, and, and it was chronic. And so that's, a, that's very significant. But on top of that, we also have societal and cultural layers, where even if, let's say, you grow up in a family that's like good enough parenting, we're still faced with the almost constant message of, like, don't listen to your limits. Mm-hmm. Um, pretend you're okay when you're, when you're not okay. Um, ignore your body. Uh, you're strong when you stuff your feelings. Mm-hmm. And so there's like all these levels where it becomes not just about one group of people. This is really for everybody. And I think that the stronger we collectively become and the more able we are to connect to these internal experiences, the more resilient we're really going to be as a culture. And so just to answer the other question that you had, like when was it that I had to write this book? I think it was a couple of years ago. It was right after my son was born, my second child. And I just kept seeing all this stuff like in the media and honestly, even in the Christian world that I felt like vilified 
our emotional experience and almost made it seem like like it, it's so bad to listen to ourselves and all these things. And it just lit a fire in me where I was just like, I get where people are coming from, but man, there's, there's a deeper need that we can address here. Yeah. I, I've heard you say, um, another way to say it is paying compassionate attention to ourselves and kind of giving ourselves permission to notice and name what's going on underneath the surface so that we can work with that. Can you talk about how to practically do that, move from denying and repressing as we go throughout our day to actually naming and noticing in a kind and gentle way what is go- what our body's trying to tell us about where it needs healing and where it needs attention? Yeah. Well, so to answer that question, I'm going to take a little step back because I think it's an important piece with the trauma-informed lens. And and what I would want to talk about is something called the window of tolerance. And the window of tolerance is this idea that all of us have a physiological range in which we can sort of feel our feelings or notice and experience the sensations in our body. And when we go outside of that range, we first go into fight or flight, or we then go into dissociation or freeze. Now, this is really significant because once our body shifts into these different states, our prefrontal cortex which is the part of our brain that can really help us pay compassionate attention, Mm -hmm. the part of our brain that can be social and ask for help, the part that can be nuanced, the part that has access to our whole brain, that goes offline. And so what that means is if we are in full-on fight or flight, we are living from the bottom part of our brain whose only goal is survival. Like literally, that's the only goal. So if you talk to someone who's in full fight or flight and you're like, so how's your day? You're probably not going to laugh. Like you're going to be like, whoa, whoa, like what's going on? Like with that person, you know? And so the reason this matters with the question you're asking is that we sometimes the very first step with doing this work is actually getting connected to our body and beginning to even know those limits. Sort of like, when am I in my window of tolerance? And sometimes it can be a little bit blended, like we're a little anxious, but we're still mostly in our window, things like that. But for so many people, this is such a different like paradigm shift, and we're so um, not used to paying attention to our body. That I would say like that's the that's the beginning is even just checking in mm-hmm. <laughs> and recognizing because as we get comfortable with that, we can bring in curiosity and compassion. And that's where that compassionate attention begins to come in and say, like, I'm noticing that I've said yes to way too many things this week and I'm like overwhelmed and I'm yelling at my kids constantly and I'm my heart is racing 100 miles per hour. And I just wonder if there's a way I could be more gentle with myself or if there's, a, if there's something I could potentially say no to. Yeah. So that's like an example of it's less prescriptive and it's more like this is the lens. Mm-hmm. This is the way we are with ourselves so we can stay in that window of tolerance and really be aligned with who God made us to actually be. 
Yeah, that's so good. And I mean, honestly, this when I first heard this topic of trying softer, I pushed back a little bit because I was I think strength is such a value for me. Like I just really value and respect strength. But I love one of the things I, I saw that you said was gentleness does not mean weakness. It mm. means using your strength with wisdom. I just thought that was such a great definition. I think that sometimes we think strength comes from being hard on ourselves and pushing ourselves past where we feel like we need to go, um, but that's not actually the case. Can you unpack that idea a little bit more of the idea of gentleness actually being strength and a source of strength? Yeah, man, I love that. I love that you asked that question because it's something I'm so passionate about. I find that people, because of my message, often have an idea of what I might be like personally, since that's my message. And I always think that's funny because I'm, I'm a very fiery person. <laughs> um, like I just am a very tenacious person. Um, you know, my experience growing up playing a lot of sports and doing things that as a college athlete, just various things, um, I know what it's like to push my body. And so What's so fascinating to me about really this journey of trying softer is that I have become so much more resilient than I ever thought possible. And it's not because I've continued to push myself outside of my limits. And I think this is the key, again, going back to that window of tolerance concept, right? So if I am pushing myself well, like let's say you're, you're working out and you can tell your legs are getting tired, but your legs are not injured. And so you're able to sort of stay with what you're experiencing. Like you're like, hey, we're almost there. I got this. You know, like I remember doing wall sits back in the day and it's just like it's burning, but like I'm not hurt. Yeah. You know, like I'm yeah. not injured. I can stay with this. But what I would say is that this try harder and sometimes what I call like a white knuckled perspective mm -hmm. is like I pulled my hamstring and I'm like, I don't care. You do that wall sit anyway. Yeah. Right. You keep like you do another set of lines like you should be sitting resting, but like I don't care. Yeah. And that to me is the difference mm -hmm. because compassionate attention actually takes a lot of courage. Like part of that is standing up for and using your voice for the things that allow you to stay in your window of tolerance. So I would say an example of that is boundaries. Like boundaries can be extremely scary for a lot of people to say, like, I'm sorry, this isn't like, this might disappoint you, <laughs> um, but I can't do that for you. Like the strength that's required to honor that is pretty significant. And so I, I think that's the line. Like that there is a there's this difference between pushing ourselves well and saying, I can keep going. Um, like I'm not in a place where I'm hurting myself. Yeah. Versus saying, I'm in the red zone. Like I am treating my body in a way that I would not require from another person. And that is an indicator to me that it's gone too far. I'm sitting here thinking about my role in the lives of my children, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking about, all right, you know, sometimes do we push them too hard? Are we really, we try softly with them, but we're hard on ourselves and, and really trying to make sure that we're trying softly all around. So like, if you don't mind, take a second and talk about like the role of, of trying softer 
and finding that balance with our kids as we as we parent them with all different personalities. You've got two different chill, two different kids. You get it. Like you know, what does that look like? Yeah. No, I think this is such an important concept. And probably one of the reasons I am at the place personally in the work that I'm doing, like, is honestly after becoming a mom, it showed me the levels of healing I still needed to go. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I, like, yeah. oh, I thought I was doing okay. And then I became Yo. a mom. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, I, like, I need a, like, I need a lot more help. <laughs> so I just so get that. And um, one of the things that's super fascinating to me and that I'm really passionate about this work is that essentially trying softer and really doing this work of compassionate attention is so beautiful because it's literally the opposite of being selfish. Because what it does is we are in tune with our own experience. And because that's true, like literally from like a neurobiological standpoint, what that means is our ability to empathize and essentially resonate and pick up on the cues of the people around us and those we love, that's actually what allows us to do that. So alternately, when we're disconnected from our body, when we're disconnected from our experience, it doesn't matter how much we theoretically love someone. In practice, we don't have the tools to, to be in sync with them. So when our kiddos come home and they are exhausted and sad from a day at school mm-hmm. and we're not in tune and we're not doing the work to try softer with ourselves, our capacity is going to be very small to sit with their pain. Yeah, it's good. To resonate with their pain, to, to even have you know, essentially that the embodied wisdom to say, how can I help? Like, what would you need from me? Like, how can I be that safe place for you right now? And and a lot of times what happens, and and I just want to say, if this is a parent who's listening and you've done this, just know that like, this happens a lot and you're not the only one. And there's a lot of room to grow. And so just know like, this is not at all Um, I hope you can hear this from a place that it's not about shame. I think it's just so common, though, for us in those positions to say, be quiet. What are you complaining about? You've got a good life. Or we're so anxious because of what's going on in our life. We're like, I care, but uh, I can't talk to you. Bye. You know, there's all these different responses. And it doesn't mean we as parents need to be perfect. You know, not by a long shot. We'll never be perfect. That's okay. But if we have the emotional intelligence to track with what they're experiencing, we can come back and say, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. Like, I see now that you had a really hard day. And mom should not have been getting on your case about the fact that, you know, that your room's a mess. I am so sorry. I really missed that. And how can I, how can I be there for you right now? Yeah. I think about one of our kids and even when you try softer sometimes and you say something, they may hear something different (laughs) and trying to bring clarity to go like, no, no, no. I wasn't saying try harder. 
I was trying to say something that says try softer, but even helping navigating, even in a healthy place, what did they actually hear me say? I may not have said something out of spite or anger or whatever or tiredness, but it's just even on that next level and that next layer going like, okay, wait, what did you hear me say there? Because I didn't just say try harder, but you heard me say try harder. So how can I better communicate with you that we're both trying softer here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I think that's really the beauty of not seeing this as like a one and done. Right. (laughs) Like that one time I was kind to my kid. I'm all done. You know, like. (laughs) In 1995, I had that moment. (laughs) Two o'clock. So good. I loved you once. So we're good, everybody. (laughs) But it's like, just like we are constantly in process, like our kids, their brains are literally being shaped by our interactions with them. Like that's one of their highest points of feedback, right? I know. I get it (laughs) because I get it as mom. (laughs) But I think the beauty here is that we really, like we can repair when we've messed up. I mean, research consistently shows us that even the, what we would maybe call like the, the most secure or safe parents are truly not perfect. They are only two, like research shows only two thirds of the time are those types of parents even on track. And, and so like one third of the time they're totally on track and the other third of the time they're basically like trying to repair. (laughs) They're like, Hey, you know how I missed you? Like, can we get back on track? You know? And so, you know, I just hope that parents who are hearing that can really exhale and say, this is not about perfection. This is about humility. Right. This is about self-awareness. This is about recognizing that God is so kind to us. Mm -hmm. So we can be kind to ourselves. And in turn, we can be really kind and compassionate to our kids. I love that. That was one of the most motivating things for me when I was um, researching for this interview. When you talked about being kind to ourselves, like not just for the benefit of our own soul, although that is so important, but we're modeling for our kids. Like we're either modeling, this is how you beat yourself up and be hard on yourself, or this is how you're kind to yourself. Um, And it actually results in you being kind to others as well. So I just love that. Talk a little bit along these lines, the difference between guilt and shame. And I think it's so huge, especially for our kids, like you said, whose whose concept of shame and, and their brains are still being formed. Can you talk about the difference between the two and how we model for them the right way to change? Yeah, yeah. So um, especially Brene Brown, I, I, you know, a lot of people have talked, talked about guilt and shame. So she's definitely not the only one. Um, but folks might be familiar with her, but she talks about that guilt is I did something bad and shame says I am bad. Mm -hmm. And from a neurobiological standpoint, right? So like when I talk about the window of tolerance, when I talk about trauma informed, that's all neurobiological information. So shame that we experience that isn't followed up by a repair. So like as a child, like, and it's, it's somewhat normal to feel shame, but, but if if we don't have a family system or caregivers that help us heal or repair that perceived shame of I am bad, Mm -hmm. that is essentially the story, the message that we carry in our bodies. 
And so, you know, even from a a faith standpoint, I think of guilt um, very on track with repentance in the sense that we change and we turn a different direction when A, we're in our window of tolerance. So we can think of guilt as a healthy, adaptive um, learning and corrective experience. Like none of us are perfect and we do need feedback sometimes. Like we need to hear like, hey, that was not okay. You know, that was hurtful. You know, that thing that you did, it, it hurt my feelings. It, I mean, there's so many ways. And I think that's so in line with what God teaches us that, hey, like I want us to be loving towards each other and towards yourself. And I think that can come from a really healthy place of guilt. And as parents, um, one of the things that we can do, and Dan Siegel, who's who's really big in the world of interpersonal neurobiology and this whole stuff, he's he's got. I totally recommend your listeners look him up. But he he talks about in parenting, it's really important to connect and then correct. And so, really, what we're doing with that connection is we're sort of helping kiddos stay in their window of tolerance or come back to their window. So the priority again is like getting folks regulated because we can't, none of us and especially kids can learn when they're in that highly um, high arousal, fight or flight, hypervigilant state, like no learning can take place. So once we've connected and come back to ourselves and our bodies, then we can say, hey, you know, when X happened, that wasn't okay. And so let's make a plan or let's make amends or let's figure out what our next steps are together. And then on the other hand, though, that shaming piece, a lot of times out of our own unresolved shame, um, I can think of how easy it can be like when your kids aren't acting or living up to our perceived idea of, you know, maybe it's like embarrassing to be out in, at a store and your child has a meltdown. And out of our own experience of shame, it's really common to then shame. We project that shame onto our kids. And it's like, maybe it doesn't matter. Like we don't see that they're overtired and they had a bad day and um, they ate too much candy. You know what I mean? And so it's like, we are just like, get it together or else like you're in for it. Yeah. Maybe I had too much candy that day. (laughs) You know, generally the case. Yeah. I think what I'm hearing you say overall, you keep coming back to this idea of connection and compassion, you know, being kind of the catalyst for change with our, both with our kids and with ourselves, like showing compassion, empathy, noticing what's going on before we just jump on them or on ourselves. Um, So we're coming to a close. There's so many questions I didn't get to ask. I'm so bummed, but we're going to bring it to a close. But I just, I wonder what your hope is for somebody who's picking up this book, somebody who's work doing that good, hard work of moving towards wholeness and wellness. What is your hope um, that they will carry with them after they read this project? Mm. You know, I think my, my deep hope is that folks will really resonate and connect with the truest reality about them is that they are beloved. Mm -hmm. And because that's true, they are invited to listen to their body, soul, mind, and spirit with compassionate attention in the same way 
that God is already compassionate to them. Love it. Well, I know Beautiful. this book is going to impact so many people. It comes out in January of 2020, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So everyone listening, shoot <laughs> this thing to the top of Amazon. <laughs> we try softer and impact your life. It's great. Well, we have three questions that we love to ask at the end of every single interview, and they go a little like this. What's a book that's impacted your life and your journey? What's a habit that's impacted your life? And what advice would you give to the younger you? So what's a book that's impacted your life? This is such a great question. There are so many. Um, right now, at the top of my head, I would say um, The Body Keeps the Score. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that by Bessel van der Kolk. Um, it's a really profoundly important book that helps us understand how trauma is stored in our body. And I think as a survivor of trauma and as a therapist, like this book was one of the first sort of mainstream books that it came out in 2015. Um, I think it's been at the top of the New York Times bestseller list for like years now. But like just to have such a strong voice in sort of mainstream culture saying like, listen, we can't white knuckle ourselves through pain all the time. Yeah. Like, and really that's a part of trying, I mean, trying softer, you know, like yeah. that right, is right. for me. And so I would say that has absolutely been so influential for me. Okay. And what is a habit that's changed your life? I love this one. I think probably the number one habit that's changed my life is learning to be fully present to myself and to my body. And sometimes what that has looked like, like I practice a lot of self-compassion, um, like guided meditations and things like that, really coming from that like compassionate attention lens. But also it's like, I'll be washing the dishes and just noticing like, what is it like to feel the water on my hands? And like, like where is God in the room? And just reminding myself that like God is with me in that moment. And so it's really become a habit that is less of a like, okay, this is my time of the day that I have to do this thing. Mm -hmm. And it's become like a way to be. Mm -hmm. And it has been transformative for me. I love that. That's so great. All right. And what advice would you give to the younger you? Mm, I think... What I would say to my younger self is, I'm so proud of you. Mm. You've done such a good job. It kind of makes me a little teary. You fought so hard, and you can rest now. Mm, that's amazing. I think she'd give you a hug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's a beautiful. I love that question. That's beautiful. Cool. That's a great answer. So great. Thank you. Ani. Well, we are cheering you on. We are so honored to have you here. And this message is going to help so many people. Thank you for being here. Where can people find you? Look you up. All that good stuff. Yeah. So you guys can find me at ondicolber.com. And that website just came out. So that's really fun. We just revamped that. And then on Instagram at Andy Colber and on Twitter at Andy Colber. Okay, perfect. Well, this was such a treat having you on and we hope people were blessed by this conversation as much as we were, but we're cheering you on and we know this is going to be such a blessing. Yep. Thank you. Thank you guys. You know, I always love it when we have someone cry on the show. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's 
good. Hey, I always say, if you can get them to tears, it's a really good place. Absolutely. Guys, thanks so much for listening today. We really hope that this episode encouraged you as you start out this brand new year. And we would love to hear your thoughts. It really does mean a ton to us. So if you can, hit us up over at our website, letsliveitwell.com. Or you can leave us a review on iTunes or come find us on social media. That's where all the fun is, right? <laughs> and as always, you can find all the info for today's episode in our show notes over at our website, letsliveitwell.com. Well, that is a wrap for this episode, and we're going to close it out like we do every single time. Remember, you only get one life. Live, Live it well. well.